a teacher gave her seven-year-old class an assignment to uh, draw a nativity scene. And uh, they were busy going about their particular assignment. And as she was walking around the room, she was intrigued by some of the ideas that some of the children had. And there was one little boy who had probably the most unique of all of the scenes. And uh, she was looking at it. She saw the typical scenes that you would see, you know, the shepherds and the, the manger and, the, the, you know, Mary and Joseph. And, and then she looked and she saw in the corner of the, uh, of the manger area, the stable, a very large, heavy man. And above the scene was an airplane flying overhead. And she couldn't figure out what it was, was what this young boy saw, and she was curious, and she said, Jimmy, what, what, is, what is this, who's this man standing there? And he looked and he smiled and said, well, that, that's round John Virgin. <laughs> and she said, oh, okay, well, what's up with the airplane and what's going on there? She said, you know, that's Pontius the pilot. And just kind of like read into something that, you know, wasn't really there, but it sounded like it should have been there. And, uh, you know, some of us do that when we look at what God has to say about different things. Specifically, the subject that we're going through right now, the ongoing topic, and that is of love. Many of us read into it what we want it to be rather than allowing God to tell us what true love or genuine or spiritual love is. And what's interesting about it is, is that, you know, we live in a world that's desperately searching for love. And rightly so. Because if you think about it, without love, we feel alone and we're helpless. Without love, uh, we turn to anger and hostility and bitterness and resentment. You know, without love, uh, we, we lose our, our proper self-image. And uh, we no longer regard our lives as important or valuable or the things that we do as worthwhile. You know, and if you stop and think about it, without love, people become self-destructive. People turn to things that destroy their life or they run away altogether. Without love, a child will be afraid and insecure. Without love, sex loses its proper uh, beauty and it's replaced by a feeling of being used and abused and discarded. Without love, marriages stru struggle and uh, families deteriorate. So the pursuit of love is a valiant uh, and uh, noble quest. And that's uh, why it's critical that we clearly recognize that love as it's defined by God. Because after all, God is love, and everything that comes from Him is love. And it's a spiritual love. It's agape love. It's supernatural. It's not man-originated. It's centered in the person and the character of God Himself. And that's why in this session, we're going to start to begin to understand the necessity of God's love in our life. The necessity of God's love in our life. We're going to look at a passage that's commonly referred to as the love chapter, it's written in a book to a church that was uh, located in the city of Corinth, right outside the city of Athens. The Corinthians, as, as we look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're going to examine one of the most recognizable passages in the Bible. But before we get to that, there's something that I want to share with you because there's a place that needs to take, there's something that needs to take place in the lives of every one of us before we even begin to look at 1 Corinthians 13. And there's something that each of us have to want to do and that is simply this. Each of us have got to come to a point in our life where we want to experience God's love. It really starts with desire. 1 Corinthians 14.1 tells us that we are to pursue love. That we're to seek it out. That we're to diligently go about finding God's love in our life. And the Bible says this, that whosoever seeks out God's love or whosoever seeks out God will never be disappointed. And that God will bring us into truth. And the truth will set us free from all of the bondage that, that is attached to our lives. And it will set us free from sin. And it will set us free from the things in our life that hold us back from loving others as God intends us to love them, Him, through us. And so as we look at this, there's a couple of things that we're going to need to do to get started on this particular journey or this quest. And the first thing is that we need to remember... And you say, well, what do we need to remember? And I, I think it's important to lay a foundation that we remember that we are sinful and that we're selfish. And we're incapable of loving others as God wants us to love them. We're sinful and we're selfish. You know, and it's hard for some of us to recognize that. And I know that it sounds strange. And I was talking to a group of people last night. And it's interesting how everything is on a comparative basis, just like what Al read this morning of the woman who thought on a comparative basis she really wasn't that bad. 
But you see, God's standard isn't on a comparative basis. It's not me comparing myself to you or you to me or you to someone else in your life. But it's us looking at God's standard objectively and saying this is God's standard of measurement. We've spoken often about the, about the fact that God has given us his commandments or his laws to help us to look at that as a standard in our life, just as we look at a, as a, a speed limit sign as we're driving down the road as an objective standard of measurement. And yet so many of us will like to compare how we're driving to those around us. But officer, I wasn't going as fast as the person who passed me. How can you pull me over? And the standard of object, objective measurement is, but the speed limit is 65 and you were doing 80. But, but the other person was doing 90 and I saw someone doing 100. But that's not the objective standard of measurement. And so God uses his laws and his commandments to help us to realize and understand that all of us have fallen short of the standard of God. That all of us, the Bible says, are sinners. That we fall short of God's standards. None of us are righteous. No, not one. No matter if you think you are, you're not. Because as we measure ourselves against an objective standard, we all fall short. And that's what it means, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the first place to start in this quest of finding God's love in our life is to remember that all of us are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. If you've got your Bibles open, turn with me to Romans chapter 5. As we see a very key passage in helping us to understand that we need to remember this before we can even begin to understand God's love, before we can even begin to look at 1 Corinthians 13, which is the definition, the biblical definition of God's love, we need to recognize and understand what God has to say about this whole idea of sin in our life. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, we learn that God's love is different from our natural responses and, it's, and from our learned behavior patterns. That God's love is only available through His Spirit who indwells people who have understood and come to recognize that they're sinners who fall short of the glory of God. And they act upon that. And in Romans chapter 5, we read this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because, listen, the love of God has been poured out within our own hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But you see, God demonstrates his love for us, and even yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we're saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Notice what he's saying, that we must remember that all of us are sinners on an individual basis that we have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And there's no one that's righteous, not one. And the Bible says as we've come to understand that, that God, as we respond by accepting this gift that he's offered us, and that is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that now the love of God has been poured out within our own hearts. That now God pours his love out into our lives so that now that love can flow through to other people. It's distributed by God because it comes from God and he's the source of that love, that spiritual, that agape, that supernatural love. So we got to remember that, you know what, we are sinners. And what holds us back from loving others is not having a relationship with God, number one. And then when we do have a relationship with God, that we quench the spirit or we shut off the flow or we cause it to be shut off and shut up in our life so that it doesn't flow out to anybody. The second thing that we need to do is we need to recognize that God's love is available only to believers in Jesus Christ. Only to believers in Jesus Christ and it is a product of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 very clearly helps us to understand that it's not something that we can work up on our own. 
You can never know the deep satisfaction of loving God's way until you first of all have come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior from sin, from death, and from hell. He died on the cross in our place so that you and I would not be condemned by God, so that we would not experience judgment. The Bible says that the product of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life if you look at Galatians 5, starting with verse 16, we're told, But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. They can be seen by everybody. People look at your life and they can see it. They can see it in me. They're evident. It says immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But notice, but the fruit of the Spirit or the evidence of the Spirit's presence in our life the fruit of the Spirit is what? First of all and foremost, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The point is very simple. It should be evident to those around us that we have come to a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ. Because it will be evident by the way that we live our life. It will be evident by the love that we have for others around us. It will be evident by the self-control that we demonstrate when those around us have no self-control. It will be evident by the fact that we're patient with God and we understand that He's at work in our life. And while the rest of the world is impatient trying to do things, we sit patiently waiting upon God to direct us and lead us in our life. I mean, I look back on my life and I'm looking at this going, you know what? There was no love in my life. There was no joy in my life. There was certainly no peace in my life. There was no patience with anyone and I struggle with it today. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that wasn't true of me. But as I've come to faith in Christ, the Bible says the Spirit of God now indwells me and you if you've come to that same point. And the fruit or the evidence that you are born again, the Bible says, is a difference or a changed life. You know, we need to recognize and understand that the Bible clearly says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes, and it results in righteousness before God. But with his mouth, he confesses, or agrees with God, and professes that Jesus is Lord, resulting in our salvation. There was a church at Philippi who asked the question, what are we supposed to do? Because when the gospel was set forth, they understood that they were sinners, that they fell short of the glory of God, that they were on their way to hell, that they, in turn, put Jesus to death on the cross, and they knew that the wrath of God would be poured out on them for what they had done that led to the death of Jesus on the cross. And when we recognize and understand that it was my sin that sent Jesus to the cross, and I am responsible for that, the first thing that we got to ask is this, what must I do to be saved from the wrath of God? I am going to pay the price for what I did. And God says, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. See, God so loved this world that He gave us His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible goes on to say, and God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn it. Why? Because the world had been condemned already. But He sent Jesus into the world to save it. Jesus Himself said, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. When was it lost? When Adam chose to sin before God and rebelled against Him. The Bible says, just as through one man Adam's sin entered into the world, so also through one man, Jesus Christ our Lord, comes eternal life. God's answer to our sin problem was Jesus. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. God made manifest, Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate. 
not putting up lights and not getting confused about everything that's going on around us and not all the hustle and bustle. And I, you know, I was talking to someone this morning. I said, you know, I don't believe that God wants Christmas to be as hectic and chaotic and confusing as it is. I think of Martha and Mary and I'm reminded constantly that Mary chose the better thing and that she focused on time at the feet of Jesus. And she recognized and understood what he had come to do. And she put herself at his feet and she listened to what he had to say. So many of us were off track. We're, we're deceived by all the activity of what's going on. And many of us get angry and embittered by it. And we're frustrated by it. Or we go into financial debt because of it. And we violate biblical principles. When we're to celebrate what God has done among us, that he sent Jesus to die for our sins, we need to get refocused again. We need to focus on what he, what he came to do and not just focus on the manger scene and that little baby Jesus. No one's threatened by the little baby Jesus. We need to get focused on the fact that Jesus came as a man. Yes, he came born of a woman, but he came as a, as a human being so that he could go directly from that manger to Calvary to die on the cross for our sins. And the end didn't end there because three days later he rose again from the dead to demonstrate he was who he claimed to be very God in human flesh, capable of forgiving our sins and giving us eternal life. That's the focus that we should have as we look forward to what God has done. If you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, all of your sins, past, present, and even future, were taken away at the cross. He came to take away sin and destroy the works of the devil. So as we look at this, we've got to recognize, recognize that, you know what? It's impossible to love others until we come into a relationship with God by trusting in Jesus Christ because God's love is a product of His Spirit's presence in the life of the believer. We also need to thirdly realize that our sinful and uh, selfish nature needs to be controlled. It needs to be controlled. We saw that. The contrast between walking in the flesh and walking in the Spirit. I mean, you know, it's interesting as we look at this, we need to recognize that that needs to be controlled. There are things in our heart that need to be controlled by the Spirit of God. Things like anger and resentment and bitterness and envy and all the things that come out during Christmas. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? How much anger there is and bitterness there is and resentment there is. Where are you going to eat and where are you going next and why are you going there and why are you going somewhere else and we went there last year, let's go here this year. Why do they always get their way? And look at they bought us and look at they got them and what's that all about? You know, it's like, hey, joy to the world. <laughs> you know, and we struggle with all these things and we need to, we need to realize that, you know what, that, that sinful nature of ours needs to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the last thing is we also need to respond. We need to respond to what? We need to respond what the Word of God tells us to do. We need to respond to what God tells us to do. If the Bible says it, we're to do it. That it's obedience. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll what? Obey my commandments. It's not a religious thing that we go through. We say a prayer and it's a religious activity. It's a relationship with the living God. And He speaks to us through the presence of His Spirit in our life as we read the Word of God, which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we get in the Word. I was talking to a guy last night. And he's like, man, I'm really, I'm, I'm really struggling with things in my life. I said, why are you struggling with those things? He goes, well, I've really spend, I'm spending a lot more time reading the Bible. Oh, well, that must be the problem. Stop reading it and everything will be fine. I mean, that's our attitude. Wow, if I read this, I get convicted about some of the things I should be doing and God's speaking to me and the living word goes out and it penetrates my heart and it's judging my thoughts and my intentions, telling me what I'm doing that's wrong and what I should be doing that's right. And so our answer is, well, run from this. That must be the problem. No, it's revealing the problem. The problem's you and me. It's in our hearts. That's why the word's a lamp under our feet, a light under our path. That's what God's word does. It illuminates darkness in our life. And then God says, you know what? If I say it and you love me, do it. But I can't love that person. I don't even like that person. They get me nauseous when they walk into a room. Ooh, here they come. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but you know what? But see, here's the problem. God says, you can't love that person. I can't love certain people. Hallelujah. 
But the point is this, that God can. You understand that? I'm trying to understand it. God is saying to me, hey, you know what? You can't do it on your own. Step aside and let me do it through you. But I can't forgive that person. I can, if you allow me to. I can't control myself. I can control it if you allow me to. See, that's the problem, isn't it? We're the problem. We get in God's way. He wants to do great things through us. And he's able to do great things through us. If we would allow him to do great things through us. He loves the unlovable. He loved me. Case closed. I mean, think about it. And that's what we need to recognize and understand. So if we can do these things, the point I want to make, and I want you to understand as clearly as possible, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you have never got to the point where you recognize that you are a sinner, that you fall short of the standard, objective standard of God, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and invited him into your life to be your Lord and your Savior, then this chapter and this passage that we're about to read and get into doesn't pertain to you. Because you can't do this. It's impossible. Because it's only a product of the Spirit's presence in our life that makes it even remotely possible that we would allow God to love people as he wants them to be loved through us. If you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life for the forgiveness of your sin, that's where you need to start. Lord, I'm a sinner. I fall short. You're, you're right. I'm guilty. I'm busted. I have no defense. And I just thank you and I praise you that you sent Jesus Christ to die for me. I don't understand what great love that is, but I'll accept that gift that you offer. I'm not worthy. Exactly, that's what grace is. We're not worthy. None of us are. None are righteous. None are worthy. God demonstrated his love even while we were sinners. He sent Jesus to die for us. Nothing we can do. But humbly what? Accept the gift that he's had to offer. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But that's so simple. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because it goes against the very, very objective or, or the very subjective sin of men in God's face and that is pride. God, I'll do it my way. Thank you anyway. I don't need your help. But it's a broken and contrite heart that God will never despise. The one who falls on their knees and says before God, God, I am a sinner. And I just praise you and thank you that you sent Jesus to die for me. And I want to welcome him into my life. And I want him to do whatever it is that he wants to do and make me whoever it is that I'm going to become. And I just look forward to it. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. The simple prayer of a sinner, God will never, ever cast out. And so as we look at this, we need to recognize that 1 Corinthians 13 is written to a group of people who have invited Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior of their life. And as we look at this, we're going to take it in bits and pieces. In 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1, we're just going to take a look at the first few verses where we read this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing." 1 Corinthians 13, in a way of background to help us understand the context, was written to a group of believers who, as I said, lived in a city of Corinth outside of Athens. And they were a group of people that God accused of being very carnal in the way that they lived. Carnal or fleshly is simply, the easy to find way would be saying, they were people that put their faith and trust in Christ, but continued to live their life as if they didn't know any different of how they were now supposed to live. If you would have saw them, you wouldn't have known them, uh, other than the fact that God says it's by grace we're saved through faith, that they had invited Christ into their life individually for the forgiveness of their sins. They became, as the Bible says, calls Christians, they were born again. But if you saw the way they lived their life, you would have never known it. 
They were fleshly, they were carnal, and that's the, the biblical words that are used. But in street talk today, we just say, hey, you know what? They just lived any way that they wanted. They lived like they used to live before they came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So they were being uh, condemned by God and rebuked by God for the fact they continued to live as if they didn't know the Savior. And so God just lays it out and kind of hammers them for it. And says, you know, they were fighting about all kinds of things. They, were, they, were, they had disagreements over who was to speak. They were, they were tolerating immorality in their midst. In this particular case, there was incest. They didn't understand God's standard of holiness when it came to sexual relationships with one another. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 deal with that. They're having problems in their marriages. They're having problems with their lifestyle. Idolatry was a problem. And, and they were having problems with divorce. They were unloving toward other believers who disagreed on minor points of doctrine. I mean, they were basically, they were arguing and they were they were they had dissension about everything. And, they were, and God looked at them and he was trying to help them to understand that in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, we learned that there's, a, there's a, a, a discourse here on spiritual gifts. So what he was saying was that every believer, every person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God gives us a spiritual gift or gifts. The Spirit of God gives us those gifts as he chooses to give those gifts. So the explanation in 1 Corinthians 12 was there, and they were arguing about spiritual gifts, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. And so 1 Corinthians 13 then explains to them, and in fact the lead-in is verse 31 that says, but earnestly desire greater gifts, and notice, and I, I show you still a more excellent way. A more excellent way. It's important that we recognize that God's love is an excellent way to live our life. The early Christians were called followers of what? The way. Jesus said, I am the way, truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. I am the way you're supposed to live. I am the example you're supposed to follow. Everything that you saw me do and everything you heard me say, that's the way you are to live as believers here in this earth. We're to be a light in the world that shines in darkness. Jesus is the light, but we're to be a light that shines in darkness. There's a way to live that will be so attractive to the people around us that they're going to look at it and say, Wow, why do you live the way that you do? Because I follow Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. And I apply biblical principles to every area of my life. That's the way I live my life. And so they were followers of the way, but they weren't living that way. They were living the other way. They weren't walking with the Lord and they weren't walking in the spirit. They were walking in the flesh and they weren't living the way God had told them to live. And it became evident to people around them and it's obviously evident to God. And so as we look at this, we need to recognize and understand he's trying to help them understand and to teach them that there is a way that is a more excellent way. It's better than any other way to live. And that's living our life with God's love at the center. That's an excellent way to live. They weren't spiritual. They were carnal. He, they weren't commending them. He was condemning them for the way that they were living their life, saying, don't live that way anymore. Now live this way. You need to understand it and recognize it. And so as we look at this, the word a more excellent way emphasizes that God's love is a continuing, continuing lifestyle. It's not something we do at a moment of time. It's the way that we live all the time. It's not an act of graciousness or an act of, quote, love that we show at a moment of time, though it's demonstrated in a moment of time, but it, it covers more than that. It encompasses all of our time. You know, we live in a world where it's like, you know, we see this, this effort to be loving at Christmas time and then hateful the rest of the year. It's amazing to me, but that's the secular world we live in. The world we live in, you know, the most heinous people all throughout the year, all of a sudden for a couple of days in December, they try to get nice. You know, love, peace, joy, that's what this is all about. I'm going to try that. Man, that didn't feel good and that wasn't very natural. I'm going back to just being a jerk. I'm comfortable with doing that. But it's amazing because, see, God's way is continual. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, not just for special occasions. It's who we are and who we become and how we're supposed to live. It's a way. It's a more excellent way. It's an exaggeration. It refers to overstating a point for effort emphasis and you can't overstate God's love notice also that it is a way that's observed I show you you will see it it's observable we can recognize it when we see it and so as we look at this particular passage we're going to see that God's love is a necessity in our life because without God's love we look very clearly at what he says happens in our life if we do not have God's love present 
Notice, without God's love, he starts with verse 1, and he tells us that without God's love, our communication is ineffective. We have ineffective communication. Notice that. Now, every one of these verses starts with the word if or though. You probably see that in your Bible. It says if or though, if I speak with the tongue of angels, oh, though I speak with the tongue of angels. Every one of these first three verses starts with if or though. And so what it means is that it's not that any one of us ever could do these things that are about to be mentioned. It's an exaggeration for the point of making a very clear and concise point. But that is, even if you could do what he's about to, to tell us you could do or I could do, he's saying even if you could do this, it wouldn't make any difference if you don't have love in your life. Notice what he says. He says, if I could speak with the tongues of men and of angels. The word tongues is a word in Greek that we get our English word glossary. It has to do with languages. And he's saying that even if I could speak in the tongues of men, meaning that if I had the ability to speak in every known language of the world, and how impressive that would be. Saying even if I could do that, but I didn't have love, then it's no good. It's a big zero. You know, stop and think about it. If you can speak in all the languages of the world known to mankind, without love we would still be unimpressed. Man, linguistic ability is, is a wonderful talent and it's an amazing thing. You know, if you know multiple languages, you're, you're a person who's looking for a job and you can speak several languages. I mean, the demand is there. We're, we're, the people I work with at Baseball Chapel are trying to find a Spanish-speaking uh, uh, individual to conduct all the Latin American ministries to try to reach people with the gospel in Latin American countries and Puerto Rico and the Dominican and all the places where they have uh, uh, winter league baseball. And we're looking for a solid guy who loves the Lord, loves the Word of God, can teach the Word that can, that's bilingual. He can speak English and, and Spanish fluently. And man, I'll tell you what, that's an invaluable asset to be able to send to, to cross that cultural bridge. When you hear people that say that, oh, I speak six languages fluently. I don't know about you, but I just go, whoa, I'm impressed by that because I can't even speak English. <laughs> That's pretty exciting, man. I mean, I'm butchering English up and you speak six languages fluently. Wow, that's pretty impressive. But you see, you've got to understand, too, the context will help us realize how important the gift of tongues or, known, or languages known to those who hear it would be to the Corinthian church. In fact, turn back to Acts chapter 2, and I'll show you an example of why this was a gift that they so wanted in their lives. It was earnestly sought by those because of the impact that it made in their community and in their culture. In Acts chapter 2, notice what we have here. Starting with verse 1, we read this. And when the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place, speaking of the disciples, and suddenly there came from heaven noise like a violent rushing wind that had filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they appeared to them, and there appeared to them tongues as if uh, distributed fire above themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Since now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they marveled, saying, why are, not all, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each, each of us hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, perplexity saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And the Bible says, but Peter answering that, that rebuke on the part of those who were accusing them of doing something that wasn't true, took his stand among the eleven, raised his voice and declared, men of Judea and all of who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. And he said, this was a fulfillment of the prophecies of God. The scripture has come to fulfillment in your hearing. Can you imagine how incredible it would be to stand before the United Nations Assembly, General Assembly, and to be able to stand before them and speak to them, and no one needs to translate, even though there are 50 different known languages of the world represented in that room, there would be no need for a translator, there's no need for headphones or headsets or any translation device. You would stand and you would speak, and every person sitting there would hear them in their own language. 
They were amazed by that. They were in awe of that. And it's important to recognize and understand that they understood what was being said and what specifically was being said was that they were praising God and they were speaking great and mighty deeds of God. God used that to recognize, so that people would recognize this was a miraculous moment in time when people from all over the world were hearing of the great and mighty deeds of God in their own languages and that God had come to each person individually to share his good news and his love with them. They were in awe of it. They were amazed by it. And so the Corinthians, when they realized it was a spiritual gift, that languages was a spiritual gift, that you could go and speak to a crowd of people and they would be in awe and amazed by what you said. They said, hey, I want that gift. That's a good one. Everyone's amazed and in awe of what I can do. Wow, you know, when they got all puffed up by, hey, I like that. The speaking in tongues or speaking in languages unknown to them but known to the hearers would be a wonderful thing, a great thing. And it is if we're declaring the mighty deeds of God. But you see, language is important to them. And the point that Paul was making and God was making through them is saying, look, even if you could do that, if you don't have love, it's a big zero. If you don't have love for people, it doesn't make any difference. In the context, when we look at this, we realize how in awe and incredible this was. They were amazed, they marveled, they were in awe, their jaws were dropping, they were impressed to say the least. Imagine that, it's an amazing thing that took place, a miraculous thing. But he was saying is, even if you could do that, if you don't have for love for the people that are hearing, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter whatsoever. He says, and he goes on, and he says, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, he says, and if I speak with the tongues of men, every known language of the world, if I could do that, and of angels... Saying that's even a more remarkable thing. There are people that argue that tongues are a prayer language, heavenly language, whatever it is. But what's interesting about that is Paul said that he was caught up in the third heaven or paradise in the presence of God, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, and he heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. He heard a language, a heavenly language. And he was saying as a point, he's saying, look, even if you could speak every known language of man and the language of heaven, which you can't do and God won't allow it, because Paul couldn't do it, even though he heard it, he wasn't allowed to express it. He said that, hey, even if you could speak with the tongue of men and, and of angels, every language that there is, it covers is everything, and even if you could do that, and you don't have any love, man, you know what? It doesn't mean anything. Love is the greatest need in our communication with one another. If we are to effectively communicate with others, our words must reflect God's love. You know, it's been said that French and Italian and Spanish are the languages of romance. But only to the extent that the right words are chosen and the right attitude and the right heart is conveyed by the words that we speak. Because it could be just as destructive as any other language. The Bible says, let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only a word that is edifying and good for the need of that particular moment. You know, stop and think about it. He says, I have become... The person who he's talking to, and if it's you, and if it's me, we need to listen carefully. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, then I have become. I am responsible for what I have become. I have become. Speaking in an unloving manner is a habit of life that many of us have chosen, and we have become that because we have chosen to go that direction. Why, have they be, why maybe has this group of people become so arrogant, maybe so prideful and boastful, and thinking that they're better than other people because of the spiritual gift that God has given them? God says, this gift that I've given you, I've given to you, so why are you bragging and boasting about it? I mean, when people come and say, hey, I really appreciate your teaching, I appreciate what you've done, you know, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm humbled by that because I want them to understand and you to understand that it's not me. That when God gifts us and we exercise that gift, God gets all the glory and he gets all the praise. And yeah, we have a responsibility to be diligent about exercising the gift that God's given us, but we can never take credit for it and boast about it. All I can say is that God's given me a gift and a desire to study and to teach the word of God. And if I exercise that gift, then God should get all the praise and the glory. And I thank you for what you're saying from the human effort side of putting the time into it and the passion and the interest and all that. But you know what though? It's a gift that comes from God. What do we have, any of us, that haven't been given to us by God? So who are we to boast about our own abilities? They're not ours. They're God's who gives them to us. And so why had they become arrogant people? Because they had forgotten that any gift that they had was given to them by God, and they had become arrogant, and they had become because they chose to become. Notice what he says, I have become what? A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. 
You know, I wish the drums were set up here. I could go smack on that cymbal. I mean, that's an annoying, irritating thing. I have become a noisy gong in the clanging cymbal. Ephesians 4.15 commands us to what? Speak the truth in love. To speak the truth in love. God never asks his people to water down the truth or to compromise truth, but he does tell us to speak the truth in love. Bathed in love. Filled with love. And all one has to do is observe how Jesus conducted himself in those difficult confrontations when truth was on the line. Jesus never compromised the truth, but he made sure that when he spoke, that it was immersed in love. What you're doing is wrong. Go and sin no more. You know, we can love sinners and hate sin, and we can be loving in how we approach them and handle it. See, God's truth is very clear. For example, you can go to someone and say, you know what? You, if you have not invited Jesus Christ in your life for the forgiveness of sin, you are going to hell. That's true. It's true, based on the word of God, the authority of God, not on my opinion, not on what I feel the program should be, but based on what God clearly reveals. That's true. But if that's the way that I confront that person, they're not going to accept that. And they're not going to listen to that. Why? Because they see it as condemning and judgmental. And who you think you are telling me I'm going to hell? But if we do it and it's, and it's bathed in love, and God's love, we can share the same truth with them and allow God to use those words to penetrate that person's heart. You see, we all need to be more loving in our, our communication with one another. It's like when your wife asks you something, she says, do you like my new outfit? Do you like my new hairstyle? And she's asking and shaking her head like this. Gentlemen, I will warn you, you're about to approach dangerous territory. <laughs> See, you know, and there are ways to say things in response. It doesn't mean that you can't say things, you can't be truthful, but say it in love. A few years ago, I decided, I don't know why, I just got the urge, I want to grow a beard. You know, cause, probably because I could finally do it. And... Uh, <laughs> So, so I, I grow a beard, and I'm, I'm, I come to church, and man, I, man, I'll tell you what, you people are amazing. And, uh, and so I, you know, I have people come up to me, and I have somebody go, wow, that sure is ugly. <laughs> All right, you know, that's stupid. Why'd you do that? That sure looks dumb. You know, and you got people saying, hey, man, you look mean. You look nasty. You know, you got this, you got that. What's wrong with you? What were you thinking? You going through a midlife crisis? You know? <laughs> I got all this kind of stuff going on, right? And I see one lady, she looks at me. And I see her out of the corner of my eye. And she's just standing there like this. <laughs> and so I got to, excuse me, is there something on your mind? And here's what she said. She goes, yeah, I was, just, I was just amazed that you would choose to hide such a good looking face. behind all that hair and I just kind of walked away and I thought about it and I thought wow how true that statement was <laughs> so I rushed home and shaved <laughs> but what was amazing was that you know it's amazing how when we share something and it's true not, not necessarily that <laughs> But if it's true, and we say it in love, how much more receptive it is that people will listen? It's tough. I know it's always tough to balance truth in a loving manner with how we say things. Perhaps you've heard the story. I love the story. There were two men who were very evil. They were rich. They used their money to keep their evil ways from the public eye. They even attended the same church, and they appeared on the outside to be perfect Christians. Then their pastor retired, a new one was hired, and not only could he see right, not only could the new pastor see right through these brothers and their deception, but he also spoke well and true. And the church membership grew in numbers as he was a man who was, maintained his integrity and truthfulness. And there was a fundraising campaign that was started to build this new church that they were building. Well, unexpectedly, one of these brothers dies. The remaining brother seeks out the new pastor the day before the funeral, handing him a check for the amount of the entire building project that needed to be completed. And he said, I only have one condition. At the funeral, you must say my brother was a saint. The pastor took the check and he gave his word. He deposited the check right away. So the next day at the funeral, the pastor didn't hold back. He said of the man who had died, he was an evil man. He cheated on his wife. He abused his family. 
He cheated in his business. He wasn't ethical in the things that he did. He was a hypocrite. He was a phony. But he finally concluded with these words. But compared to his brother, the man was a saint. <laughs> Speak the truth. Speak the truth. I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Husbands are told, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Literally meaning stop being sharp towards your wives. Women are told not to be contentious and argumentative. Not to use words that are like the dripping of a faucet upon the forehead of a prisoner of war. Husbands, don't miss what I said too. About not speaking sharply or embittered towards your wives. Not to speak with words that are destructive, but constructive. Not with unwholesome words, but wholesome words that build up and edify. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask of myself. When people hear words come out of my mouth, are they a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal? See, because if you have developed a habit of tearing people down or being negative or being bitter or being angry and vengeful in the words that come out of your mouth and being destructive instead of constructive, I will guarantee you what happens in your communication with others is that you know what they begin to do? Just as they hear that noisy gong and the clanging cymbal and it bothers and irritates their ears, they will tune you out. They will tune you out and they will tune me out and we will lose our opportunity to share great truths from the Word of God. We need to become men and women who speak the truth, but we speak it in love because we care about that person. People will not care how much you know until they know how much you care. And once they understand that, they will listen to you. And once your love is so evident to them, it's a way of life with you, and they see it in everything that you do and everything that you say, they will feel a confidence and assurance that they can come to you at the greatest needs and moments of their life and that you will share with them truth. That you won't compromise, you'll share truth, but you'll do it in such a loving way that they're compelled to listen. What a wonderful thing that is and testimony it is to have people that we personally have known that heard the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel presented in truth and yet they were so overwhelmed by the love for them that they realized that, you know what, that what the truth was being spoken was true because the Spirit of God went out and penetrated their hearts and the package, the program works where God's truth goes out and sets people free, but it's only received because Christians love other people. See, without love, our communication is ineffective. Ask yourself the question, what has become the habit in my life of how I communicate with those around me? Is the habit a gong, a clanging cymbal to where people don't listen to me anymore? If people aren't listening to you, how can you tell them about Jesus? If people are tuning you out, how can you tell them that they're sinners, that they're on the road to hell, and unless they embrace this indescribable gift that was given to us in Jesus Christ, that they are lost for all of eternity? If we don't become intimate with people, and demonstrate through our actions and our attitudes and the things that we say and do that we love them and care for them and the thing that we want less than anything in this life is to see them lost for all of eternity. How can we share God's love with them if they hear a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal when we open our mouth? We all need to work on it. I know I do. In every area of life, in my conversation with my wife and with my children and with my business partner, my employees and, and my friends and people around us, and even as I present the Word of God, I must demonstrate God's love and concern and care for people. I don't want everyone, anybody to walk out of here and go, man, that guy was so arrogant and obnoxious that they didn't hear God's love come through my lips. We need to recognize and understand that that is, without God's love, our communication is ineffective. In two weeks when we get together, we're going to continue in this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Just as a reminder, next week there's one service at 10 o'clock. But I want to close with these words. And that is this, God's love is our greatest need. And it's clearly reflected in His forgiveness 
of those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's been said if our greatest need had been information, then God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, then God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, then God would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, then God would have sent us an entertainer. It says, but our greatest need, each and every one of us, every one of us as individuals, is forgiveness. And for that, God sent us a Savior. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. For God so loved this world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish and have everlasting life. Your greatest need and my greatest need is to be forgiven by God. And that forgiveness only comes when we trust and believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins. Have you come to that point in your life? Regardless of anybody around you, but you, in your own heart, have you come to trust Jesus that he died for you on the cross so that you will never have to pay the price for your sins and that he rose again from the dead proving that he is capable, he is worthy of our love, he is worthy of our hearts, he is worthy of all our praise. For God gave to him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee one day will bow on heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. I would encourage you to do it now, so that you can enter in a relationship that's abundant, an abundant life here on this earth, and a life to come that's guaranteed because of what he did for you in your place. Father, we just thank you and we praise you. What an awesome gift that is. It's just, it's too mind-boggling to even comprehend it. Your word tells us it's an indescribable gift and that it is. There's no word in the human language. There's no word in the heavenly language that can accurately reflect what Jesus came to do on the cross in our place. For whosoever, an open invitation to everyone, Whosoever, doesn't matter what our race is, doesn't matter how much money we have or don't, doesn't matter what our age or our gender, doesn't matter where we live, that whosoever, an open invitation to all of mankind, whosoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, as we look forward to at the end of this week celebrating Christmas with friends and family, I just pray that we focus on what Jesus did as he humbled himself and took on the form of a bondservant, the form of a man, that he came to this earth for the purpose of going straight to Calvary to die for our sins. And that he rose three days later. That we see the whole picture from the manger to the cross to the resurrection. And that we recognize that he is Lord to the glory of God. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.